Thank you, guys. Um, <clears throat> we're here. We made it. <laughs> uh, my, uh, my daughter this morning goes, um, we're going to our new church today, right? And I said, yeah. And she goes, you're preaching today, right? And I said, yeah. She goes, it's going to be fun, huh? <laughs> Uh, which was pretty awesome. She always has something funny and encouraging to say. So uh, I have a couple of just sort of random scattered thoughts here before we actually get into it. Uh, we will be in First John continuing our series there in just a moment. Um, but before that, I uh, want to shout out Rolly for wearing the same outfit. <laughs> We're off to a great start there. Um, and then just sort of uh, piggybacking off of what uh, GR just said, I, I feel like there's a lot of people that we need to say thank you to. So first of all, thank you to those of you who uh, showed up on Friday. We rolled into town on Friday afternoon. Thank you for those who came to help uh, unload the truck. I know some of you had to sit out in our front yard for a little while while you waited uh, for me to get there, but we knocked that out really fast, and what a blessing to be welcomed uh, in that way. And a special thank you. I don't know who this person was, but somebody made a gift basket. And it, is, it was one of the most thoughtful things uh, that I've ever seen, just all the detail that went into it, clearly thinking through all the members of our family and what they might like and a bunch of great stuff to welcome us to Davis. So thank you for those things. Uh, again, a thank you to the elder team, to the search team, to the hiring team. Um, thank you to Roly and to Jeff uh, all of you went, uh, I think, way above what your sort of normal job description was during this past season, uh, as you guys discern what the next step for Discovery was, and so we're really grateful for that. And then I'm also grateful for everyone here who has been thinking about this and, and asking questions about this process and praying for whoever the next pastor would be, praying for us um, over the last month uh, as well. So it is... Uh, just amazing to be here. I never thought, never imagined in my wildest dreams that this is something that I would be doing. And so uh, really grateful for the opportunity, humbled uh, to be invited into this role. And on behalf of Amy and her kids, just wanted to say thank you and, and express how excited we are to do this together, to journey together, to uh, hopefully lead us towards a movement of disciples who make disciples who make disciples to impact our city and our world. So I, uh, that's about all I know to say as far as the future. I, I wish I had some sort of like glorious picture to paint, but we've only been here 48 hours and I barely know how to, you know, find my own house. So <laughs> we'll get to the vision stuff in, in the future. All right, let me pray and then we'll get started. So, Heavenly Father, we, uh, we are so grateful for this moment this morning, for what it represents, for this new chapter. And God, the text that we have today in 1 John, I think, actually is perfect for this moment. Because we don't know what is going to happen next. We don't know the future. But we do know that we can discern and we can make good decisions and we can be wise because of your leadership in our lives. And so as we enter into this new season and this new chapter, God, would you give us great discernment and wisdom 
about what comes next, about what you want for our community, about where you want us to go and how you want us to be a blessing to this city and even to this world. And so, God, we give this, this time to you, not just this moment this morning, but again, this next season that we enter into. We want to be humble. We want to be attentive and receptive to your leadership. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. All right, let's start with a really long quote, because that's a great way to start your first sermon at a new church, right? <laughs> So this quote comes from a book called The Organized Mind that was published in 2014 by a guy named Daniel Levitin. Daniel Levitin is a neuroscientist who's done extensive writing and research on how our brains work. And again, this is a long quote, so I just want you to kind of sit with this, bear with me as I read through this, but pay careful attention to his words. He writes, the immediate access to information that Wikipedia, Google, Bing, and other internet tools provide has created a new problem that few of us are trained to solve. And this has to be our collective mission in training the next generation of citizens. This is what we must teach our children, how to evaluate the hordes of information that are out there, to discern what is true and what is not to identify biases and half-truths, and to know how to be critical, independent thinkers. In short, the primary mission of teachers must shift from the dissemination of information to training a cluster of mental skills that revolve around critical thinking. The need for education and the development of expertise has never been greater. One of the things that we need to spend a great deal of time doing is figuring out which sources of information are credible and which are not. And figuring out what they know versus what they don't know. These two skills are perhaps the most important things we can teach our children in this post-Wikipedia, post-Google world. And then he closes with this. What else? To be conscientious and agreeable, to be tolerant of others, to help those less fortunate than they, and to take naps. <laughs> All the parents of small children are like, yes. Now, that, again, that was a long quote. Did you get all of that? I want to read just one bit of it over again. This has to be what we teach our children, how to evaluate the hordes of information that are out there, to discern what is true and what is not, to identify biases and half-truths. Now, again, this book, researched and written and then published in 2014, it turns out that Daniel Levitin was extremely prophetic, Right? I think he saw some things coming. The discernment process that he writes about here has really come to a prominent place in our cultural conversation through the fake news phenomenon, through social media, all these different things. And of course, we think about this, we treat this as a modern phenomenon, and in many ways that is true because of some of the technology that we have, but discernment is not a new virtue that we need all of a sudden just because we have smartphones. We've always needed discernment. And this is a big theme in 1 John. It's a significant theme in our text this morning. So if you do have your Bible or your, your app or whatever, open to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John comes right at the end of our Bibles. 
And as you've been uh, working your way through this conversation, we've been calling it Walking in the Light, you've seen a number of repeated themes. And this is how John writes his letter. He kind of circles back around over and over again to some of these major themes, themes of truth and knowing and discernment. And again, all of this comes back up here at the beginning of chapter four. So in verse one, and I'm, I'm working from the NIV because I packed my ESV. I don't know where it is. It's in a box somewhere in our office. Rolly can tell you that my half of the office is full of boxes right now. So hopefully I can find that next week. All right, 1 John 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Again, one of John's primary concerns for this community, this group of young Christians, is that they would be led astray by a false teacher, false prophets, those who are propagating narratives that run counter to the truth about Jesus. Now, John is in a unique position here. He was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Not only that, he was part of sort of the inner circle there with uh, James and Peter. And he was also described as the disciple that Jesus loved. So he's uniquely positioned to be able to name, identify these false narratives. And he begins this section, as he does many times throughout the letter, with this, with this intimacy. Dear friends, And he, again, he uses this over, over and over again. Dear friends, dear children, dear friends, don't fall for everything that you hear. So he begins this encouragement, and there's going to be some strong words that come here in the next couple of verses, but he begins with this intimacy. And this is interesting to me because a lot of times, at least in the conversations that I have, it feels like theology gets relegated to the realm of hobby. It's sort of like a, a, a board game or TV, right, where it's, it's fun, maybe it's a little bit interesting, but it's kind of off to the side. It's not part of our real life. Arguments and disagreements about theology can become tangential conversations, conversations for specialists who do research and write books. And in some cases, there's a lot of truth to this. You would be amazed, maybe you're aware of this, you would be amazed at how much energy gets spent over random stuff, how to translate a Hebrew word in the book of Ezekiel or whatever the thing might be. So some of it is kind of superfluous, but there are some theological issues and conversations that are truly matters of life and death. And I'm not trying to be melodramatic here, I want us to feel where John is coming from. There are stories, there are spirits that will lead you towards life, and there are stories, there are spirits that will lead you towards death. And so John, because he loves these people so deeply, dear friends, he does not want them to head towards death. Who would want that for a loved one? For John, theology is not a hobby. It's not a tangential issue. So the question here is, what do we do? How, how do we know who is a false prophet? How do we identify these false stories? Look at verse 2. 
This is how you can recognize. I love that, right? So many things in Scripture are, are hard to understand or require some interpretation or we have to wrestle with it at some level. John says, this is how. <laughs> Thank you, John. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. John here is going after one particular pernicious heresy. It's one that continues to plague us to this day. It's the idea, the teaching, the story that Jesus did not come, and the key phrase there is in the flesh. Jesus did not come in the flesh. C.F. Allison has a, a little book called The Cruelty of Heresy. And uh, again, it, it's, it's one of these sort of obscure books, but really good. And he goes through all of the heresies that plagued the early church. And he says, out of all of these heresies, you can really boil it down to two things. There's two fundamental heresies. The first is this, to deny the divinity of Jesus. This is historically known as Ebionism or Adoptionism, and there are a whole bunch of variations on this theme. But the central idea is that there is no spiritual world. There is no spiritual realm, and therefore it's impossible that Jesus, the historical figure of Jesus, could have been some type of God. The sin of this heresy is one of pride or self-centeredness. And the good news, if you want to call it that, that's offered by this teaching is that if we try hard enough, if we're good enough, if we discover the right behavior for, uh, or the right formula for behavior, if we follow the law perfectly, if we enact the right policies, we'll solve all of our problems. We can save ourselves. Now, the other basic heresy is to deny the humanity of Jesus. And this is historically known as doceticism, more popularly known as Gnosticism. Docetics fall into the sin of escapism. And the good news here is usually wrapped up in some sort of secret spiritual knowledge that allows us to escape whatever it is that's holding us back in our lives. It's wanting all the benefits of a relationship with God without the messy, risky, real-life parts of it. Spirituality without having to live in the real world. And this is the particular distortion that John is going after in verse 2. But then in verse 3, he widens the scope a little bit. Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Recognizing Jesus for who he is, fully God and fully human, is critical, John is saying, to discernment to testing the spirits. And again, this is really interesting to me because I think a lot of times we make the litmus test something other than Jesus. Are you with me? And we make it what political party you vote for or what Bible translation you read or what worship style you prefer or what systematic theology you subscribe to. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? That list could go on and on and on, but you get the idea. 
Far too often we make the dividing line not Jesus and who he was, fully God and fully man, but some other thing. And so if we are going to divide, John is saying, let it be over our understanding of who Jesus is, not one of these other issues. Now, this brings us to one of John's most pointed statements in the letter. Here's the whole of verse 3. Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Any spirit, any story that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is what John calls Antichrist. Kind of a scary word, right? Especially if if you have some church background, maybe if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, you have maybe read some literature about the Antichrist or seen him in a movie. And we get this idea in our mind of this villainous looking guy in a red suit with with a like a slick goatee, right? He's got this like evil grin on his face, and he's standing behind you, gonna make you do something bad. We, we need to get that image out of our minds. Notice how John talks about it. He talks about the spirit of the Antichrist. There is a spirit, an ethos, a story, and these spirits and stories, they come at us in a million different ways. And so again, we need to leave behind this image of a sinister individual sitting on our Shoulder and instead consider the spirits, the stories of our times. What is the spirit behind the conversations and the values and the ideals that shape our lives? Antichrist is anything, whether it be an individual or an institution or a collective ideal that denies Jesus, that denies that Jesus was a historical, in the flesh, human being who is also fully God. Anything that attempts to minimize, reduce, or marginalize Jesus is the spirit of the Antichrist. And and please note, please take note of this. John does not say anything that minimizes Judeo-Christian values or minimizes the church or minimizes the voice of Christians within the culture. That's not his main concern. In fact, I think he takes it for granted that this is going to happen to his dear friends. So what John is far more concerned about is confusion around who Jesus is. And in fact, the clearer we are on who Jesus is, the more we hold in tension his divinity and his humanity and dive into the mysteries of that paradox, the more likely our views are to be rejected. Because our culture is really good at Ebion and Docetic stories, at Antichrist stories. Now again, this sounds really spooky, right? (laughs) Antichrist stories. So what I want to do is try to make this a little bit more real for us. Here, we're going to walk through eight Antichrist, anti-Jesus stories. These are taken from a book called Hidden Worldviews. And I think they'll help us see this a little bit better, okay? So the first one is this. Individualism. The story that I am the center of the universe. 
Consumerism, the story that I am what I own or I am how much I can make and how much I can buy and consume. Nationalism, the story that my nation is God's nation. Moral relativism, the story that we can't know what's universally good and true, so it's kind of up to us to decide. Scientific naturalism, the story that all that matters is matter. New ageism, the story that we are gods. Postmodern tribalism, the story that all that matters is my group, the group that I'm a part of and identify with and what they think. And then therapeutic deism, the story that the main goal in life is to be a nice, self-actualized person. Okay, those are just eight examples. I'm sure there are more. But where do you see those stories impacting our world? Where do you see these stories influencing the way that you view the world and make decisions? You can see how doceticism shows up in relativism or consumerism or therapeutic deism. You can see how ebionism is there in scientific naturalism, individualism, nationalism. These are the spirits of our age that need to be tested and named over and over and over again. Richard Foster says that a spiritual discipline in our day and age is to point out all of the lies that we see in commercials when we're watching TV. Okay, so here's a real, this is just a real practical application. Today, when you're watching the NBA Finals, or the Warriors game, as I like to call it, <laughs> during the commercials, do this. Name all the lies that you see in those commercials. So how do we test the spirits? We test them through the lens of Jesus. Do, the, do these spirits, does this story that I'm being told recognize the humanity and divinity of Jesus? And fundamental to this testing is our own understanding of the humanity and divinity of Jesus, which leads us to a really important question. Do we know the Jesus story? Do you know the plot? Do you know the contours of the gospel story? And one of the things that John is doing throughout his letter is giving reminders how the story works. This is a story defined by love, by incarnation, by risk, by sacrifice, by the cross. And by the empty tomb, John says it this way, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Jesus himself says it this way, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Later on in Mark, Jesus says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul, another New Testament writer, says it this way. 
have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is how we recognize Jesus' stories, spirits that come from God. Power is given up. Sacrifices are made. Lives are laid down. Crosses are picked up. Life is found by giving it away. And so it is against those standards that we test the spirits of our age. It is against this standard that we determine, is this thing from God or from something else? This brings us to one of my favorite words, orthokresis. Everybody say orthokresis. Good. Greek scholars, all of you. I'm guessing that most of you are, are probably familiar with the word orthodoxy, right? Right belief. And, and maybe many of you have even heard the word orthopraxy, right action. But I'm guessing that not as many of us are familiar with this word orthokresis. Orthokresis means right discernment. Orthokresis is what we need to be able to test the spirits, to be able to name Antichrist stories. So how do we grow in orthokresis? John says, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So he begins with this affirmation of their identity. This is who you are. Because this is who you are, you have overcome these other forces. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world's and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. What's the key word there? The key word is listening. We discern through listening. So to wrap us up here this morning, I want to give us just a couple of ways that we can work on listening, things that we should be listening to so that we can hone our orthocresis. First, we listen to Scripture. We listen to Scripture because Scripture tells the story, the story of what is true, who God is and what he is up to in the world. It tells us the story of Jesus, the story of the cross, the story of his sacrifice, and the good news of his resurrection. So as I said earlier, we need to become very comfortable, very familiar with this story, the plot and the contours, the ups and the downs of the gospel story. So we listen to scripture. Second, we listen to the Holy Spirit. There's probably a, a whole series to do on this topic, but for now I, I wanna say this. One way that we test a spirit, test a story, is what does it produce? What are the byproducts of that story? And the way that scripture talks about that, it uses the analogy of fruit. We're told what the fruit of the Spirit are in the, in the book of Galatians. 
So to listen to the Holy Spirit, we need to get good at asking the question, does this thing that I am testing, does this story, this spirit produce love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? If you see those things showing up, that's a really good sign that you're paying attention to the Spirit, to the Holy Spirit. That's a really good sign that this is a Jesus thing. These things are showing up. If you don't see those things, it may be a different story. Third, we need to listen in community. We must find people who can help us grow in our orthokresis, who can help us discern. It's really hard to do discernment well by yourself. We get into all kinds of trouble trying to discern alone. This is why community groups, small groups, discovery groups are so important. And for Amy and I, this is maybe the most important listening that we had to do over the last year in this process that led us here to discovery. As I said earlier, I I never, my parents are here, you can ask them this, I never imagined doing this. (laughs) Never thought I would be a senior pastor, a lead pastor somewhere. And when that stirring started in me, I thought for sure that something weird was going on, that Uh, I was like having a a, a fit of arrogance or something. I wrestled with that a a lot. Am I just some sort of like power-hungry, ambitious jerk who thinks that he can do this better than everyone else? And so it took a lot of conversations, a lot of processing with trusted friends and family who helped process that and affirm that, no, I think this is really from God. It helped me see that, again, it was God prompting us to take this step. And as I said earlier, I, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what our next year is going to look like. But what I do know is this. This role is accepted with appropriate fear. <laughs> I stole that line from Steve Kerr. I got, I've got the NBA Finals on my mind. I love that phrase, though, appropriate fear. So uh, the best that I can say is that this is, we've come to this decision from a place of humility and appropriate fear that God is asking us to do this, and we don't know what it's going to look like or what it's it's all going to mean. But we are so excited and so grateful to be here. And again, that has been affirmed by this communal discernment process, both on our end and I think also on your end as well. Finally, we listen through the sacraments, and in particular, the sacrament of communion. This is why we take communion every week when we gather, to listen in this really tangible way to the story, to remember Jesus and his sacrifice, and to be able to test the spirits against this thing that we hold in our hands. So a couple questions. What story is the defining story of your life? Is it individualism, naturalism, consumerism, some other ism, or is it the gospel? The Jesus story. The story that God came to us in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, fully God and fully man, that he lived and died in our place, that we could have right relationship with God again. 
that he overcame the power of sin and death, that we might live free, abundant, eternal lives. What story is the defining story of your life? And then where do you need to grow in your listening? Do you need to dig more consistently into Scripture? Do you need to pay more attention to the Holy Spirit? Do you need to seek out the fruits of the Spirit? Is it through community? Are you trying to do this on your own? Do you need to get connected, plugged in somewhere so you can do discernment together? Or is it through paying attention to the story and communion, allowing the sacraments to form us and shape us? So again, we don't always know what the future holds, but we can commit ourselves to listening, to orthokresis, that we can become a more wise and discerning community together, a community that knows how to name and identify the spirits of our day, that knows how to name and tell the Jesus story. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for these words from, from John, words that can, can sound uh, a bit harsh, and yet they come from this place of deep love, wanting to call us towards life, towards a relationship with you, and away from things from stories from the spirits of our day and age that might pull us away from what is true. So God, this morning, we, uh, we ask, we beg that you would help us to grow in our ability to discern, in our orthocresis. We may not be the smartest people, we may not have the best ideas or the, or the soundest strategy, but May we be a community that can discern well together, that is wise in the decisions that we make and is grounded in the Jesus story, in the gospel story. So God, we, as we enter now into a time of communion and worship, may you use this moment to, uh, to speak to us, to prompt us. Whatever it is that we need to do this morning in response to this, would you give us the courage to do that? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.